Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hacks Pole Position. I have been out on the hunt for you guys to find something other than the Second World War. And lo and behold, you are all in luck because we're going to be talking something completely outside of the box and I'm really excited to be doing this. So we've got Chris Felash with us today. He is an associate professor at Lazarski University in Warsaw. He specializes in the history of Central and Eastern Europe but predominantly Poland. Today we're going to be talking about smuggling and smuggling by Polish elite athletes who during the communist period, during the communist period specifically in the 1970s. Hi Christopher, we're going to talk about sports in general in Poland. So I think we should give our listeners a little bit of background information about what life was like in Poland in the late 1960s and early 70s, because obviously it changed throughout the course of the, course of the uh, communist period. So hit us with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> what you have to understand is obviously you have the 49 post, post-war period where for a couple of years it was relatively open. And you have 49 to 56, which is basically Polish Stalinism where you have, you know, the secret police and all the horrible stuff, people being repressed and uh, stakhanovites, all that kind of stuff, Incre- incredible amounts of production, industrial production, all that kind of stuff that people think of, you know, when you're outside of Poland, if you thought about what communist era Poland was. But then in 56, uh, Gomułka comes to power, who becomes the first secretary of the Polish party. And he sort of was like a national communist. And that meant that he sort of meant that there was a little bit more a little bit, not really sovereignty, but a little bit more independence from, well, no, let's say, no, not independence, but a little bit more sovereignty from the Soviet Union. Um, they didn't have collectivization in Poland, for example. There was a little bit more focus on consumption instead of industrial, uh, instead of investment in, in industry. So in 56, there was this massive kind of Polish October, which basically meant a liberalization in cultural circles. Uh, people, I mean, a bit of relaxation of the censorship, although it was still pretty bad. Um, so in general, life got better for Poland after 56. Okay, it's still obviously not a free country. Okay, but the secret police doesn't repress as much. It, you can live relatively normally post 56. Um, by the end of the 1960s, though, uh, it was getting pretty bad for Gomułka, who was in charge from 56 to 70. Uh, there was a kind of economic stagnation. There was also this horrible... Uh, anti-Semitic campaign, which was led by parts of the communist uh, establishment in 68. Uh, you had student protests. Um, and finally, in 1970, Gomulka leaves power because uh, there is these kind of uh, price rises uh, and then strikes on a Baltic coast. And uh, Gomulka basically orders the police that they can use live ammunition. Uh, I can't remember exactly how many people are killed. Um, and then 
uh, instead of Gomolka uh, coming into charge as the, the first secretary, you have Edvard Gerek, who was uh, kind of the he was a, a miner when he in his youth, um, and he lived in France, and he basically believed for a while, and also in Belgium, and he believed that Poland, um, a way to sort of keep the Communist Party in charge, and also I think he sort of believed it anyway, was to really improve consumption. So <clears throat> by the, in the mid-1970s, you have um, all these kind of Western products hitting the Polish market. So people start to drink Coca-Cola, for example. Uh, they buy a, a license to have uh, Fiat cars, uh, which were made in Bielsko-Biała, uh, where you are living. Funnily uh, enough, I know the guy who actually built the factory and who designed the yeah. factory. Yeah, he's a, an uprising veteran who who died a couple of months ago. But um, oh. I, and I only found this out a year ago, just so you know. Sorry to interrupt you. Keep no, going. No, no, no. Just <laughs> it, no, no basically, there's all these things linking together. But but basically, in the 1970s, it, uh, Pol- it was sort of more liberal, so people kind of had more chance to travel. I think we might come back to that in a second. Um, but uh, so that's basically where we are. If you look at the late 1960s, it's not a particularly good period, let's say, in Polish communist uh, history, although it's way better than the Stalinist era. It's way better than the Stalinist era. Um, and in the early 1970s, you have this kind of, it's not really an explosion compared to the West, but a lot of consumer products hit the market and Poles are able to buy televisions and uh, fridges and all these kind of things. Obviously, they have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> which was generally the way that things happened. But uh, yeah, so that's where we are really. And this is before 1976 when you have this open opposition uh, called CORE, the Committee of the Defense of the, of, of the Workers, which eventually led to solidarity. So it's like this middle period of the Polish People's Republic, basically. So we're here to talk about the athletes. Okay, so what kind of role did they actually play in the communist period? Uh, well, in, in, in general, basically, athletes were seen as role models. Um, it, it's not that different to the way that, you know, often in society we see sports people as, as, as role models, okay? That if they, I don't know, if, weird story, I think Cal Walker, didn't he visit some, um, or so, uh, there was someone that had, there was a kind of call, call girl came around to uh, Cal Walker's house or something like that. It was something that happened in England recently and, and everyone was like, oh God, how could he do so, such you know, morality, you know? So I think that we, we quite commonly put, we, we sort of have different, well, not different standards, but I'm not saying visiting call girls is okay. <laughs> kind of, uh, we, we really focus on morality when it comes to sports in any way. It's not just about in, in communist era of Poland, but, but, but the communist state had a specific aims for them, right? They, they wanted, they saw them, first of all, it's really important for propaganda because if you had great sportsmen, they could uh, um, do very well in international competitions outside of Poland, in the Olympic Games, for example, um, in different championships, okay? And then if you won those games, then that meant that you were saying that, you know, that the communist uh, system was actually stronger and uh, more healthy than the Western capitalist system. So externally, it was important. But also it was important at home because if you could, you had a, a role model sportsman who, um, you know, was very, you know, loyal, uh, who sort of, I don't know, was, was kind of responsible and so on. Then you could say, okay, look, you should be like this guy, okay, or, or this woman um, and, uh, you know, behave responsibly, um, you know, don't overly consume, <laughs> don't go too crazy and so on. So in general, they were role models for the communist state. 
Do you know when you were talking about the the whole uh, idea that they were, you know, communism was is is better than the West? All that's going through my mind when you were saying that, and please don't laugh at me, is uh, Rocky. And is it Rocky Four when he fights the Soviet guy, or Rocky Three? I might, I can't remember which one it is. You know, you can well, see this with, with Dolph Lundgren playing as uh, yeah. Russian. Yeah, so it's like this big Russian guy and, you know, he's pumped up and he's, he's showing how great, you know, communism is. And that's all that was going through my mind when you were saying that. And I just had to say it because I just can't stop laughing about the well, I think there's this podcast series about Cold War and sport, which I think you can find. I can't remember where it is exactly online. But I think one of the episodes was dedicated to Rocky. So uh, obviously it wasn't real because that's, you know, it was a fake kind of <laughs> But the it's point like, is, I think, you know, I'm sure there's an academic article written about it somewhere. Like, there is for pretty much everything. So, I mean. is, um, is, is it possibly Cold War Conversations that did it? Uh, it wasn't Cold War Conversations. I think it was uh, the, uh, I think, a Wilson project in the United States. They had, uh, for oh, yes. Actually, they're really good for, for, for documents for when I was doing my BA. Yeah, they're fantastic um, for documents. And they did, I think, a 25 podcasts about different elements of cold war and sport i, I recommend it it's a really good uh, series well there you go guys apart from obviously our amazing podcast do give yeah, them a try well. yeah but do you know what if we're talking about athletes i want to know what their lives were like because i can imagine that it was just so grim and so depressing just like it was for the rest of the population but i know you're going to tell me i'm completely wrong uh, wait a minute <laughs> It depends. I mean, you know, it's really difficult to look back in, in general about, you know, and view what people's lives were like back then anyway, because, you know, I can't imagine it, you know, for example, my mum, my, sorry, my wife's uh, dad is, uh, remembers the 1970s really well, for example, but then I suppose it's because it was his youth, right? You know, so we all have the, our memory sort of, it, it's, it's not so simple, right? But um, in general, I think that athletes had better lives than the average, uh, you know, citizen, let's say, or, or whatever, of, of Polish People's Republic, because they could travel, right? They could travel. They, there was all these different kind of, um, you know, events that they could play in, you know, take part in outside of the country. If you're a football player and you, uh, for example, qualified for a European Cup or the Cup Winners Cup or whatever, uh, you had a real kind of, kind of, um, there was an impetus to sort of do well, because if you kept, if you kept winning, you got a chance to go for more foreign trips, Right. So uh, that was the main reason it was different is that they got the chance to travel abroad. Um, obviously, they were looked after in inverted commas by, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, secret police <laughs> kind of who came along with them. Uh, I mean, it wasn't uh, fantastic, but also at home, you know, sports people, sports persons, athletes also uh, were normally treated better than the average person because they were important for propaganda purposes. So that meant that, that uh, and also clubs, you know, inside of Poland were competing with each other. So uh, that you couldn't purchase players, even in football, because they were all supposed to be amateurs and they weren't. But anyway, that's another issue. Um, so the way that you could get a player to move between one club and another was to promise them a flat, right? Because uh, the clubs had different kind of, uh, let's say, flats that they could access, uh, normally because they knew the kind of, and a local kind of uh, state, uh, you know, communist party, I don't know, um, official. Uh, so, and it was all in league like that. So, so basically you could get a decent flat, uh, you could travel abroad, 
the salaries were higher than the average person. I mean, they weren't incredibly high, but they were probably 30 or 40% higher than the average person. Um, so in general, it was a relatively colorful life compared to the average citizen, let's say. You briefly just mentioned about the ability to travel abroad. So let's, let's roll with that. I mean, you said they can travel, but what about the average poll? Can they do the same? And in general, do we know what the tourism was kind of like in Poland at the time? Uh, well, uh, if we look at what happened, I mean, basically until 1956, uh, for the average poll, you couldn't travel at all to the West, right? Obviously, because this was a time of uh, the height of the Cold War. So you've got all the kind of, you know, you know, the, all, all that kind of aggressive propaganda language that you, when you think of the Cold War, that, that's what was happening at the time. Radio Free Europe kind of two two blocks and basically no communication at all so the only people who could travel to the west before 1956 were diplomats sportsmen to an extent but there wasn't very much contact with the west even before 1956 after 1956 uh, the uh, it became more it became easier okay but very very slowly right okay and normally if you went to the west after 56 anyway initially it would be like on tour guides Okay, you'd have to go with, you know, someone who would organize it and it would be, you know, very, very kind of clearly kind of um, um, looked after when you were away from the country. Um, but, uh, um, and it kind of gradually liberalized over the parallel. So by the 1970s, it was a lot easier to uh, leave the country to the West. Okay. Um, obviously, if you travel to the West, you need the passport. Okay. And to get a passport, you had to wait. And obviously, passport was dependent on uh, your political background, okay, whether you were loyal or not, all these kind of things. But it was much easier to travel to the East. So basically what we see is in the 1960s, uh, well, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, it becoming really quite easy to travel to other Eastern Bloc countries. And even uh, if we look at East Germany, after 1971, for I think about five or six years, I'm not exactly sure, there was actually a uh, thing which meant that the uh, the borders between Poland and and East Germany were completely opened. Okay, uh, so before that you needed to have documents, all that kind of stuff. I think you could, well, I think you did have to have documents like an ID card, but in general it was completely open. Uh, and unfortunately that led to uh, let's because East Germany was richer than Poland in general, and the shops were more full. So what that meant was often Poles would go across the border to East Germany and just buy everything that they could find in the shops. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, the East Germans were not very happy about that. Uh, the Poles weren't that happy about it either, the Polish Communist authorities as well, because uh, they were a bit embarrassed uh, that uh, these Poles were like, you know, going too much and buying too much stuff and, and all that kind of thing. So in, in general, uh, it depended on the period, but. Uh, it gradually liberalized after 1956 and it became easier. But to the West, it was still pretty difficult. You know, you said when they kind of, they ran and bought all these products, it's just triggered a thought in my head. A friend of mine, well, one of my students actually, she lived through the communist period and she remembers the 70s. And she said that they used to travel to Cheshire a lot because for people who don't know, Cheshire is, is a town in, in Poland that's on the border of the Czech Republic and Poland. So literally half of the town is in Poland and the other half's in the Czech Republic. And they would literally go to the Czech Republic to buy things like chocolate that they couldn't get here. And it was all in this colourful packaging 
and in Poland it was all grey and dull and boring. And that's, that's just the thought that's triggered in my head of what life was like at that time. It's just, I can't imagine, I didn't, I didn't live through this time, so I can't imagine what it was like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, for example, my, my wife's parents uh, went to, uh, everyone, often when they went abroad, they used to travel, not just to buy stuff, but also they took stuff from Poland in order to sell it, right? And sort of do barter trade when they were out of the country. So a lot of people were, do, were taking part in trade tourism. Almost everyone did it. And for example, my mum's, oh, sorry, my wife, because I'm all my wife's parents, my wife's parents, so they went to Bulgaria, I think, and a friend of theirs told them to take Nivea, because they made Nivea cream in Poland, I don't know, probably on like um, a license from abroad, right? I think it's French Nivea, right? Nivea, I don't know, it's Nivea or Nivea, Nivea. I say um, Nivea, go with Nivea. Yeah, Nivea in England, yeah. I, I think I've sort of become Polonized a little bit, but uh, uh, anyway, the point <laughs> is, a friend of theirs told them to take uh, Nivea cream with them because everyone in Bulgaria would buy it off them. Uh, so uh, they took a lot of them with them, right? <laughs> Just because they felt they, because someone told them, not because they, they really wanted to sell it. Uh, and yeah, they got, they went to Bulgaria and they were like, they just felt embarrassed and they just didn't, they just had kept it in the bags and, uh, you know, didn't sell it. But, you know, it, it's a very, very <laughs> reality where normally what people did is you, you found out before you left what products were, were in demand, let's say in Poland. Um, and often what you did is you brought them out, bought products which were in demand in a certain country, uh, sold them, and then picked up the products from the other country, brought them back and sold them. It's a really confusing system, but that's what people did. And obviously you shouldn't, you're not supposed to do that, but that's what lots of people did. So we've got, we've pretty much set this thing now. Okay. Uh, we've got the tourism, we've got being able to move across borders. Let's talk about what happened in April 1970. Tell us about that. So it's important to understand that foot, uh, sports players did this, sports persons or athletes did it hugely. Right? Anyone who had the opportunity to travel abroad wanted to use that opportunity to make money at some point, right? Okay. And the way you did that was to smuggle products abroad um, and either smuggle products abroad or to smuggle foreign currencies abroad, which were not allowed to be taken out of the country. Um, then what you could do is you could buy products abroad, take them back into Poland and sell them for a profit, or you could barter the goods that you took abroad uh, when you went abroad and then got something and brought it back into the country. Um, so what happens is in April 1970, Legia Warsaw, the sort of army club, probably the biggest club in Poland, although some people would, or well, now it's the biggest club in Poland, people have arguments about that forever and ever, but the point is, in April 1970, they were in the European Cup semi-final, right? which is, I think, the, them and Vizev Woods are the only two clubs who ever made a European Cup uh, semi-final um, in Polish football history. So they make it to the European Cup semi-final. They're going to play the uh, second leg in Holland because they're playing Feyenoord. Um, and what happens is as they are leaving, to, well, they're going on a plane, actually going to go to Berlin, and play a friendly in Berlin, East Berlin, before they go and play, they go to, um, go to Holland. And as they're leaving in the, at the airport, uh, the customs guard, basically, they do, they do a check. They, they check up on them, on, on the players. Uh, and they find out that two of the players had quite large amounts of foreign currencies, which you weren't allowed to take abroad, on their person. So I think uh, the two players were uh, uh, Drotinsky uh, and Zmiewski. 
Uh, I think Zmievsky had about $1,500 on his person. And I think Gratinsky had about $300. Um, and so basically that they're, they're caught. Uh, they are uh, basically, um, there's a big scandal. Eventually the state allows them to travel because they don't want to make a big scandal of it in the papers. And again, this is another thing. There was nothing in the papers about it hardly because of the censorship. So they travel to, to Holland. Uh, they play the game. They lose 2-0. Um, and when they come back, the Polish state uh, decides to, to, to punish them for what they've done. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So what were the actual consequences for this? Did they actually go to trial? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated uh, thing because um, players were so important for the state that um, for these kind of propaganda purposes that they didn't really want to punish if they didn't have to, right? And theoretically, they didn't have to punish if they didn't have, you know, they didn't even need to leave, let anything uh, go in the press because because they had control of the press. There was complete censorship. It was hard, you know, you could hardly say anything that was kind of, that didn't, well, anything that they didn't want to get published wouldn't get published. Um, so theoretically, they need to punish them, but they, they did, but it was sort of relatively half-heartedly um, at first. Basically, uh, they decided to let them play out the rest of the season, which was until June uh, 1970. Um, and also there's, uh, in the article that I'm writing currently, or written, and hopefully will eventually be published, uh, <laughs> you've got all these kind of weird things where uh, the players, they, they want to do an investigation into the whole case um, and players won't turn up to the police uh, or the militia, whatever, which it was called at the time, the militia uh, in Poland, they won't turn up there. Um, and you get these letters written by the, uh, the uh, people who are leading the investigation saying, well, you know, what are you doing? Why haven't you turned up? You're supposed to come and uh, give evidence. Uh, and Legia's writing back, well, you know, we're playing a, a friendly game here, so the players couldn't turn up. So it, they, they didn't really take it that seriously initially. Um, and I mean, but it did finally uh, get to trial um, in October 1970. And again, there's another example of how uh, seriously they took it, Legia. The players were, uh, when they, okay, they were players who played for Legia, but Legia was an army club. So that meant officially the players were not, were actually military personnel, even though they weren't. It's, or again, the confusions of 
the, uh, the system. Uh, but when they turned up to, to trial on October the 2nd or 3rd, 1970, they, they turned up in civilian clothes. But it was, it was, it was a military court. Uh, so uh, again, the, you know, the court got really quite annoyed at the uh, legia because, and the players because you know, they weren't taking it seriously at all. Um, so, uh, and hardly anything, whether it was in the press, uh, like kind of little bits. I mean, again, I did lots of research in this. I went back and I you know, was hoping for kind of really interesting kind of, I don't know, florid <laughs> accounts of you know, how immoral these people, players were and stuff. And I couldn't find hardly anything. Wow. I really, really had to you know, look almost everywhere to find even kind of uh, little kind of snippets. And I did find them. Like little kind of like little kind of behind the scenes kind of sort of let's say muttering comments in newspapers and stuff. Uh, so it, 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 it's uh, yeah. It, 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 if if that sort of thing happened these days, I mean obviously the, the smuggling thing wouldn't happen unless it was let's say cocaine. If they were smuggling cocaine or something. <laughs> but 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 if there was a big case like that these days, it would just be everywhere. I mean it would just be. I mean, the thing is, I think it was talked about at the time, but it doesn't, because people knew that they were uh, not playing, because they, they didn't play for a while. I think, uh, I think Zmievsky was suspended for a couple of months. That was the only time it was really mentioned. Um, so people knew that something had happened, and probably people were talking about it, whispering about it, but none of it makes the, uh, the, the papers at all. That's incredible. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's complete me, basically complete media silence over something that, like you said, should have been all over the papers. Yeah, I mean, because theoretically what they'd done is they'd broken the law. They'd broken the law that the state had set, which is, I mean, it may have been a stupid law, but you weren't allowed to bring dollars outside of the country. You weren't allowed to. Um, and obviously the reason why is because the Swati, the Polish currency, wasn't convertible. So if you wanted to buy anything outside of the country, you needed to use foreign currencies. Um, so the law was, was broken and, and, you know, you could see how they, they, they could have made a big thing of it in the, in the press and they could have punished them. Um, and I think the reason they didn't do it, although I'm not entirely sure cause I can't find anything about it. I think the reason why they didn't is because, uh, it sort of, the fact that they showed that they, that they did it, it. And if you, if you, especially if you allowed them to speak and say what they, they thought, um, then you would have sympathy for them, I think. And I think the state didn't want people to have any sympathy for people who, who broke the law. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, I thought it'd be more just because they didn't want to be embarrassed or, for example, I don't know, it's quite a complicated issue, really, if you don't really know the, 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 the general, well, not the general, the exact facts. And you're kind of stuck here because you're limited. But you're not actually limited on your next um, example because it wasn't quite an isolated incident, this one smuggling one, was it? Because something happens less than a year later in February, uh, in February uh, 1971, and I've completely written the wrong date here. I've written 1941, by the way. You're stuck in the Second World War then. <laughs> I am stuck in the Second World War. Wow. So, no, we're talking about February 1971, not 41, everybody, 71. What happened? Well, well yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, we might talk about it a bit later as well, but basically people were uh, sportsmen were doing it. I mean, sorry, athletes were, were, were really smuggling all over the place. So uh, it's only, a, some of them were, were actually caught, right? And also people also ask, you know, why were certain people caught and other people weren't and whether it was a political thing and there was reasons behind it. But anyway, 
Uh, in February 1971, what happens is that some Legia Warsaw basketball players are returning from a game in Italy, in Napoli, I think. Uh, in, uh, and basically what happens is that the, they're coming back via train from Italy. Um, and as they're crossing the border, uh, the customs officials come onto the train um, and they uh, basically, they'd had a tip-off, I think, that uh, some people were smuggling. Um, and they uh, basically uh, go to the, uh, the, the train carriage um, and they uh, start unscrewing uh, different parts of the train carriage, uh, the lamps and different things like that. And uh, they discovered lots of gold, basically. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, lots of gold. Is, I mean, it's not that much gold. It's probably about, I can't remember exactly how much it was, about five or six kilos of gold. That's uh, still enough. <laughs> yeah, it's still enough. Uh, and, and, and this was basically the start of this massive case, uh, which went on for pretty much for like a whole year. Um, because uh, the people who were involved in it this time, and this was this famous basketball player, Vladimir Trams, who uh, played a lot of times for his country, and he was a, you know, a really great player, apparently. I mean, I'm not a big basketball fan. <laughs> and you can't find much clips of what he did in the 1970s. Uh, but uh, he basically was seen to be the ringleader. Uh, and they, they bring him in, and they, they talk to him. Uh, and initially, he's sort of making, you know, saying that, you know, he's never smuggled before, he's not done anything, you know, uh, examples like this. And basically, I found all these, the, the, the interrogation documents or the investigation documents. And it's like, I think it's about 20 different massive files, which wow. I uh, went through. Uh, and again, really, really interesting to, uh, to look through because it's like every day something else gets discovered and, you know, different kind of links and talking to different people in the Warsaw underworld, you know, kind of like black market and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, initially he, he, he says that, you know, he didn't do anything. And then a couple of days later, he sort of breaks down and says that he did, that he's been smuggling for years, you know, and <clears throat> what you see is this kind of uh, image of um, a person who basically every single time he traveled abroad, um, he was uh, smuggling uh, dollars abroad to buy gold outside of Poland, uh, smuggle it back into Poland to sell it to various figures in the kind of either Warsaw kind of black market or to um, kind of um, what do you call them? gold, well, not, uh, kind of people who are pawn, what do you call it, pawnbrokers and different things like this. Uh, in order to uh, make as much money as possible to buy a flat for himself and his, his family apparently had a very small flat and he was quite annoyed with the club for not giving him a good one um, and so on. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is that he started basically, um, uh, I think in American terminology, you say whaling, uh, as in he uh, basically start, he basically told on lots of people, you know, he grasped whatever you might say, uh, on lots of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, so what you've got is you've got, you know, all these football players and that basically the players who'd been caught in February, in April 1970 were brought back in to, to give evidence. And you have all these, you know, football players, football coaches, basketball players, uh, black market traders, all these people are interrogated for like about nine or 10 months. Um, and it just sort of creates this, this incredible, in my opinion, picture of this, this, this kind of, the way that the black market operated uh, in Poland at the time.
really interesting. It's, it's incredible because you, on one hand, the year before, they were just like, yeah, whatever, kind of do a trial, everything's a bit lardy done, nobody takes it seriously. And then a year later, it's just completely the opposite side of the coin. Well, why, why, why was it like that? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it is, it is, it is weird. I mean, I think that, I think it's because it happened in such a sort of short space of time after the first incident. Um, I think it's also because the same players were involved. Okay. That, that Grutinski and Zmievski were involved in both cases. So I think that they were like, right, okay, this is something, um, really important here. <clears throat> and, um, for example, Gretinsky turns out to be the second biggest figure of, apart from this basketball player, Trams. Um, and Gretinsky also smuggled gold out from like 1965 all the way through until 1971. Uh, there's also a really interesting thing. I don't even know if I, I got to fit it in the article, uh, which is that basically uh, Gretinsky, um, he actually had a lot more money on him than he said he did in, when he smuggled in April 1970 and he was caught. He actually placed about seven hundred dollars into a bin. Oh wow! No, I didn't read that in the article. Yeah, yeah, because I had to take it out for the, for the editing. But basically, what happened was that he um, he had to get rid of it because he knew the customs guards were coming. So he stuck it in a bag and he threw it in a bin. I don't know if he picked it up later. Uh, but the point is, is that uh, especially Grotinsky and Trams were doing it like for years and years and years. Um, uh, so I think that they wanted to, you know, to, 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 to crack down in that regard. But it's also, I think, because uh, the early 1970s, there was this change of um, uh, uh, administration at the top of the Polish state. Uh, and I think that they basically sort of wanted, there was a number of different kind of crackdowns on kind of black market traders and so on in the early 1970s. So I think it was sort of part of that kind of gradual, actually larger kind of uh, uh, situation. And that's why they sort of punished them so hard. And, and they did punish them. They, they, uh, Trams was put in prison, I think, for five years. I think he served three and a half years. Um, I think Grotinsky was put, was put in prison for four years and he served two of them. So they really, they, I think they gave three or four different prison sentences out because of it. I mean, did the media actually react differently this time? Please tell me it did. Uh, a little bit, a little bit more. But not very much so. It's like kind of still looking for kind of uh, very difficult. I mean, again, I, 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 um, the players actually came back out of, there was a little bit written at, at, at the time, you know, and most of it was like related to what I was saying about before, that it was about, uh, you know, that they were role models and that they'd broken the rules and that they, you know, that sportsmen should be upstanding citizens and they should behave appropriately and those kind of things. But it, it was very, it was so kind of, sort of let's say boringly propagandized that you're not really finding anything really juicy you know i know about you but when you're i mean obviously you're doing a very serious topic right so it's a bit different you can't you're not supposed to think yes when you find something interesting but even when it's a serious <laughs> topic, you also do that because as a historian you're trying to find things that you can use right but um but you know sometimes you go into a project and you're like okay right right so so this is, I know that they got punished and stuff, and I'm sure there'll be some really interesting quotes that I can use, which are really powerful and interesting. And um, no matter the topic, what a topic is, uh, <laughs> even if it's a horrible topic, <clears throat> but the problem is sometimes you just can't find them. <laughs> and then when yeah. you can't find them, 
we have to find other ways of making the material speak. And some of the quotes were okay, but there was nothing like really, really powerful. It was just ma mainly the same kind of thing that, you know, that players are taking advantage of their situation. Uh, they should be, you know, they should be like good citizens. Um, we didn't give them the chance to travel abroad so that they could uh, carry out these kind of activities and so on. I mean, the, the, the best material I really found was, was in the court case itself, obviously in the, in the interrogate, the investigation, but then the court case itself, because, because obviously in the court case, they, they allowed the um, individuals to actually explain why they did it. Um, so, um, but none of that made it to the press. You, you, you know, they, they were not able to, they were not given a, a voice at all. So the press, all the press said was basically, these guys have broken the rules um, and, and that's it. So it's difficult to, you know, you, you couldn't see their perspective if you were a normal citizen. Yeah. So I want to know in general, because you've touched on this very briefly, was why did they smuggle? Why did they do it? Uh, mostly because of, of, of money. Um, you know, if you think about, I mean, players these days, especially in top football leagues, uh, earn enough money in their career and that's it. They, they don't need to do anything else theoretically. Okay. They could live off the interest for the rest of their lives and, and everything's fine. I mean, obviously in the seventies in England, it wasn't the same. Okay. In, in, even in England, right. Okay. If you, you know, someone like, I don't know, uh, I've forgotten the seventies footballer in England. I don't know. George Best or something like that. Right. George Best. Made, a, made quite a lot of money for the time, but at the same time, he wasn't uh, really, really rich, okay? Uh, but in Poland, it was even less. So I don't know, George Best might have made twice the average salary, right? In Poland, you probably made about 40 or 50% more than the average person. And a lot of these players had not got, they had not, they had, they had, you know, they didn't have any skills. So when they finished being pl players, they, they didn't really, they had to just do normal jobs, right? I remember actually, I don't know if this is, not entirely related, but a little bit. I remember playing a, a computer game, which is now football manager, championship manager back in the day. And I remember in the 1990s when a player had finished in a lower league club, it often would say, you know, uh, I don't know, Thomas Smith has retired and decided to open a local pub. <laughs> okay. Because, because, <laughs> because they, you know, they didn't have anything to do. They hadn't, they'd earn like, I don't know, three or 400 quid a week for 12, you know, 15 years, you know. So the point is, is these guys in Poland, they really didn't have that much money, even though they were supposedly elite sportsmen. And they also knew that uh, because they traveled a lot and talked to people from different countries, they knew that Western, for example, players, uh, even basketball players uh, in, in Europe were making way, way more, more money than they were. So they felt like it was unfair and they wanted to, you know, take advantage of the fact that they could travel. Um, so I think it was mainly just because of, of money. Uh, some of them felt they were mistreated by their clubs because they were given, you know, flats, but they weren't very good flats or that, uh, you know, their, their, their wages, even in the Polish clubs weren't good enough. Um, I think I cited it in the article, but Grotinski basically said that, you know, he was 26 years old. He actually played for the Polish national team a couple of times. Um, and he said, you know, I've traveled the world and, you know, I don't want to, you know, in most people, what they did is when they went abroad, these players, they, they sort of smuggled, um, let's say, goods abroad, sold them on a market, 
just a random market or whatever and brought uh, and then brought goods back and he said he you know he's 26 years old he's traveled the world and he, he doesn't want to you know you know act like a petty trader you know he felt like he deserved more um and whether that's the truth or not uh, you know i think people have the right to really decide on their own but um but uh, uh i think it was pretty much because they felt like they uh, they they should have, they should be getting more out of their job remember they were being seen as propaganda uh, really important for propaganda for the Polish state. So if the you know if Poland won a football game against I don't know England, which they did in 1973, uh, uh, it was like you know it was massively used by the propaganda of the state. But the players, you know, they didn't get that much back from it. I think they felt it was was unfair. Yeah. I'm assuming there were lots of other incidents of smuggling where athletes weren't caught. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of them. I mean, I, I, I've done a lot of uh, reading. I was, I might still do it. Write a book about Polish football history, but I'm not sure. Uh, I'm going in different directions a little bit with my research currently. But uh, yeah, I've read a lot of memoirs of kind of uh, footballers, which were published after 1990, uh, 1989 when the system fell, and everyone was doing it. I mean, literally, everyone was doing it. Uh, yeah. So, so basically, they were all doing it, and I think a lot of them, a lot of people, uh, a good amount of them were, pun- were punished, but. I think I'm again included in the article where I talked about that um, uh, the prime minister of Poland or the Polish communist prime minister in 1965 said that if all the, or maybe it was the, the kind of, I can't remember how to to translate prokurat or uh, into Polish, the English, the, uh, the kind of the public prosecutor's office said that if they uh, punished everyone who was smuggling, was caught smuggling, that basically, you wouldn't have a, a national team in pretty much any discipline, <laughs> discipline of sport. So it was really, really common. And I think everyone knew about it, um, basically. But uh, so that means that some of these, the times when they actually did punish uh, was actually like, could have been have a, a political uh, basis that they wanted to sort of make, you know, uh, you know, kind of punish someone and uh, make other, you know, to stop other people uh, doing the same thing, you know. That was actually really interesting and I've just learned quite a lot about a subject that I knew nothing about. But before we go, I just want to mention that you do run your own podcast. So can you plug it for us? Yeah, it, it, it's actually a football podcast. It doesn't, it's, it's no one here as regular as you guys, but you know, uh, you're incredibly prolific. But um, we try to do it like every, <laughs> every month or so, but at times it's sometimes a bit more often. Um, it's called the Right Bank Warsaw uh, podcast. You can find it on all your different kind of uh, whatever you, whichever way you, you find your podcasts. And uh, the, the most recent one, actually, if you're interested in a bit of uh, is is is, is uh, of kind of football sort of history, is a bit is about corruption in general in in Polish uh, football. Uh, some of the stuff we we might talk about hopefully uh, in the the next time we 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 get a chance to talk on here. Perfect. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited to get you back on to talk a bit about Polish football and corruption and and all the things that happen in the athletic world. And it was really interesting to find out more about smuggling, uh, how it affected people, how it affected the athletes. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Hopefully people enjoyed it. Oh, I know I did. Thank you so much. 
Join us a bit later on when we will be talking to Helen Carr about John of Gaunt and all that he did in medieval history uh, in very difficult circumstances because his nephew was on the throne and he was a bit of an idiot. And then tomorrow we will be joined by Ryan McNutt who's going to talk to us about his speciality. So he's an archaeologist. He's in charge of a dig site in Georgia that looks at a civil war prisoner of war camp. Really fascinating stuff. And then down the pub we will be discussing the greatest journey in history. I've banned existential journeys of self-discovery and all that nonsense it has to be from a to b and have banned space because space would just win because it's awesome uh, it's gonna be a packed pub for that one so join us here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com 